We're going to be in uh, Luke 13. You can open your Bibles there. <clears throat> As you're making your way there, let, let me just ask you by way of introduction, how many of you are late to everything? Late to everything, show of hands, late to, I'm talking, your ancestors didn't come over on the Mayflower, they came over on the June flower, okay? So, right? So, <laughs> those of you that have raised your hands, uh, you know, hi, the late people unite, you know, I got my hand up too. No, uh, you will have sympathy for the story I'm about to tell for a guy, a guy named Clarence Jackson. He makes the person who is late, he's the poster child for it, uh, poor guy, he won $6 million in the Connecticut lottery in October 1995. And uh, you say, poor guy. Yeah, the bad news is he won it in October of 1995, but he didn't realize it until October of 1996. And he realized it too late to redeem it, and he lost it all. Lost it all. Good news is you won $6 million in the lottery. Bad news is you're too late. The big idea of our text today is that you are eligible for the greatest jackpot in human history, but you have to claim it in time. And the clock is ticking. And we're going to look at this. Jesus going to talk to us about the kingdom of God. He's going to talk to us about the way of salvation. And he is going to spell it out that tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock is ticking. The Bible says, what is your life? It's a vapor. You're here for a little while, and then you're gone. And nobody knows the day or the hour. And so the issue is this clock is ticking. We need to pay attention to it. Luke chapter 13, we're going to pick it up in context where we left off. Verse 22. And we read, and he, Jesus, went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Jesus, up until this point, we saw last week that he had healed a woman, and in the process of healing this woman, uh, he was confronted by this hard-hearted religious ruler, this Pharisee. And this was a man and a system that was filled with hypocrisy and just this hardened heart towards towards God, towards the things of God, uh, towards the things of the Holy Spirit. That's who this Pharisee was. And contextually, the problem that Jesus was up against with the Pharisees and with with the the Jewish religious leaders The problem stemmed from religious pride. And really what was going on, see the Jews, they're they're chosen by God. They're God's chosen people. God had called them into a special relationship with himself. Uh, And he then raised up prophets to lead and to guide them. And through the prophets, he'd given to them his law and his commandments. And he'd instituted uh, a religious system whereby they were to worship God. <clears throat> him through a series of sacrifices, 
But the law was always intended to point people to Jesus. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 3. He said, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so the idea is that the law was given so that it was intended to point us to our need for Jesus. That we would say, oh, look at this. This is what God requires and would quickly recognize, I am not a law keeper. I am a law breaker. That that there is something within me that just cannot get it right. And so the, the, the idea was God gave us this law so that he could take our chin and turn our gaze heavenward so that we might cry out for a Savior who would deliver us from our sin. But the Jews missed that. See, instead, they, the, the, instead of seeking to be made right with God by virtue of faith in the coming Messiah, in Jesus Christ, the one who the law was supposed to point to, this system of sacrifices and so on, they simply thought that they were made right just by the virtue of the fact that they were Jews. That, that they had a religious system of laws and sacrifices and they never connected the dots that Jesus was the Messiah, the ultimate sacrifice. So at this time, there was a great deal of religious pride. That's the backdrop that we need to see what's going on here. Their basic attitude, I'm a Jew, I'm a descendant of the religious patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore I'm chosen, and I'm going to heaven. And by the way, there are people today within the Christian church that are kind of in this same place. They sort of have the attitude like, well, yeah, and I'm American, and I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm, you know, my mom and loves the Lord, my dad loves the Lord, and so I, I'm a Christian. You know, my grandpa built this church. You know, I'm, of course I'm going to heaven, kind of, kind of thing. And listen, I'm here to tell you it doesn't work that way. The, the, the problem is God does not have any grandchildren. He only has children. There are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. I like what Ken Ham said in his book Answers in Genesis. He said, quote, we are all individually responsible to God. When saved by his awesome power, we are are adopted as his personal sons and daughters. Not one of us can claim the faith of our father or mother as our own. There's no such thing as, quote, a spiritual grandchild of God. He says, we each must come to him on our own. If we don't have our own faith, we have no faith. Even though it is the same faith as others because it is faith in Jesus, if it is not our faith until we own it in our hearts and minds. He says that was true for our parents, it's true for our children, and it's true for each of us, end quote. But that's the attitude that Jesus is up against here in our text. And one of the hot-button issues of his day, centered around this question that we read uh, there in verse 22, or 23, when one asks him the question, Lord, are there few who are saved? This was a hot-button question. It was, hey, are there many that are saved, or are there few that are saved? And apparently there were two prominent uh, rabbis during this time. One of them taught that there were many that were saved. You know, everybody and their brother was saved. 
And another one, controversially taught, that there would be few saved. And the reason why the latter one was so controversial is because the Jews placed so much pride and expectation on their birthright. Again, they thought just by virtue of the fact that, hey, I'm, I'm a Jew, I'm a descendant of Abraham, uh, of course I'm going to save. And so the, the attitude was many are going to be saved. So when this rabbi, this prominent rabbi said, no, there's only few that are going to be saved, which, you know, through the, the, the context of what Jesus is going to say here today, he was right. Um, and, and so the, the, the issue here, that would have been like a slap in the face. And the attitude kind of would be, how is that right? How is that fair? And just sort of an indignancy that would take place. That's not right. That's not fair. And again, in our circles today, in, in Christian circles, people are asking and debating the same kind of question today. You go to somebody and you start talking to them about a relationship with, G, with, with God through Jesus by faith and, and all. And all of a sudden, everybody become, becomes concerned about the, about the African in, in, in Africa who, who never heard the gospel, right? Well, what about the pygmy in Africa? Everybody's concerned about this poor pygmy, whoever he is in Africa, who, who's never heard the gospel, right? All of a sudden, they get all philosophical about that when you start talking about Jesus being the only way uh, to heaven. By the way, uh, the book of Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 8, answers that question for us. When we start saying, well, wait a minute, what about the pygmy in Africa, because what we see in Acts chapter 8 is that Philip, having been, you know, out and having a radical church, I mean, it was in Samaria, people are coming to the Lord left and right, and it's going off the hook, and then all of a sudden God says, I want you to leave there, I want you to go out to the desert road heading down to Gaza, I got a work for you to do, and so he goes out there, there ain't, there ain't nobody there, but all of a sudden he comes, runs into this Ethiopian eunuch, this man from Africa, all by himself. And the Spirit of God tells him, hey, I want you to run up to that guy's chariot and I want you to listen in on what he's reading. Well, what was going on was that this guy apparently had come from Africa. He went to Jerusalem for the, for the feast days and all. And, and apparently he went on a spiritual pilgrimage. He was seeking the Lord. He didn't know the Lord. He took some money to buy this scroll of Isaiah that he was reading from. But... but then Philip, prompted by the Holy Spirit, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And this guy says, well, no, I don't understand. How can I understand it unless somebody explains it to me? Light bulb moment. Philip goes, well, let me tell you what you're reading. And he, give, he starts talking to him about Jesus, the Messiah, whom Isaiah was prophesying about. And this guy comes to saving faith in Jesus. He says, out of his own lips, he goes, oh, hey, here's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And so what happens is God has a way of reaching just whoever he wants to reach. And so you go, well, what about the pygmy in Africa? Got you covered. See, the Bible makes it clear that everybody's going to be responsible for what God has revealed to them. So, so God, he reveals himself through his creation, and maybe for somebody who never has another human being come to share the gospel with them, just through God's creation, people have an incense or an internal sense of right and wrong. And, and so whatever it is that God has revealed to that person, that is what they will be responsible for. Now, you here sitting in, in this service uh, here today, 
uh, early December 2018, you ain't got no excuse. Because you live in America and the gospel goes forth and you've all heard a piece of it. And if you stick around through the end of this, even if you just fell down from the moon and have never heard anything about Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you the whole gospel today. So, so to whom much is given, the Bible says much is required. So you have a, a level of responsibility for, for what you've heard and for, for how God uh, has spoken to you. And so, you know, the, the, hey, Will many be saved? Will few be saved? Listen, understand it's a deflecting question. It's a deflecting question. Just no no different than, hey, listen, you got to know Jesus as your Lord and say, wait a minute, what about the pygmy in Africa? That's that's a deflecting question. What does it do? It deflects the attention off of you and your responsibility. And it says, well, what about other people? What's their responsibility? It's this deflecting question. It takes the focus off of them. And Jesus understands that. Here he is. He's going through... He's preaching the gospel, and all of a sudden, somebody wants to deflect it and say, hey, are, are, are few going to be saved? Are many going to be saved? What's the deal? And Jesus, immediately understanding that, goes, no, you're not going to deflect here. I'm going to take the focus right back to you. So what does he do? He takes the focus right back to them, and he says this, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, Not I say to to many, not I say to the few, this is what I say to you. We'll seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and he will say to you, I do not know you, where you're from. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, Well, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Notice first the personal focus here. Jesus says, you're not going to deflect it. It's going to come right back to you. Jesus says, once the master has closed the gate, if you are on the outside, he says, you will be knocking, you will be pleading, you will be weeping. Notice what's missing. You will not be asking about the pygmy in Africa. Okay? He says it's all about you. The issue of salvation always comes down to a personal focus. It always comes down to personal focus. It's not some ethereal, abstract thing. It's between you and God. I think about Peter in John 21. You'll remember the scene. Peter has denied the Lord. Jesus has been resurrected. He's showing up to restore Peter. And in the process, he's telling Peter about everything he's going to have to do, you know, that that he's going to have to suffer for the namesake of Jesus. And and Peter, in the midst of it, he looks at John. He's like, well, what about him? And Jesus just deals with the spirit of, hey, our walk is a personal walk. It's, it's not about other people. It's about, you know, your relationship with the Lord. He says this. He says, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. And so, so it's this very individual thing. So what is it that is required? Jesus says this. Look at verse 24. He says, strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be 
Abel. Jesus here makes three key points regarding salvation. Three key points regarding salvation. Now, most of you this morning have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so what I don't want you to do at this point is to go, I'm not going to pay that close of attention. I've already I've been there. I bought the t-shirt. I'm, I'm in, you know. Now, we need to understand this if for no other reason that we've been given the burden to let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven and that we are to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are, we are to, to be ambassadors of Christ. So, so pay close attention to these three key points that we're going to study through, even if it's just for, hey, I got to know this so that I can effectually, effectively share the gospel with other people. But listen, here's, here's another thing. Some of you today, maybe you're deceived. Maybe in the hearing of the three key points that Jesus makes regarding of salvation, maybe you realize uh, you've got a proclaimed faith, but it's really not a genuine faith in Christ, not a saving faith. And I would, I would, you know, I would that you would listen carefully to what the Lord has to say, because at the end of the day, I want you to know Jesus. I want to make sure that you're going to heaven, that you have the hope of eternal life. Maybe today you have never confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here as a, as a favor to a friend or whatever the case may be. Or maybe God's been doing a work in your life and he's drawn you here and you're curious. I want you to hear what God has to say about salvation. Because God wants to save you. He's a God of love. He, he, he's not a God that wants to, to fry you and to see you dead. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God is, is a loving God. He's a redemptive God. And so three key points that Jesus makes regarding salvation. First one, if you're taking notes, write it down. The way to salvation is narrow. The way to salvation is narrow. Jesus describes that way here as the narrow gate. In other sections of Scripture, he describes it as a narrow door. And in John's gospel, Jesus makes it clear that he himself is the gate. He himself is the door. Here's what Jesus said in John's gospel. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. (coughs) But the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved, they will come and go freely and will find good pastures. Jesus said again, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus is saying, look, I am the gate. As well, we need to understand that the gate is narrow. The idea of being narrow, it's not that the gate is limited in its capacity. We think of a narrow gate and we might mistakenly think, well, oh, only a few can get in the gate. No, it's not limited in its capacity. It's limited in its condition. Let me explain that. There's no limit to who can enter into salvation. Bible makes that abundantly clear. Acts chapter 2, Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said this, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. That means everybody else. Promises to you, it's to your kids, and it's to, to everyone and their brother. It's to everyone else. He's, he finishes it off as many as the Lord our God will call. 
So, so, so the invitation is for many. Uh, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, speaking of his crucifixion. Why? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, whomsoever would believe in him would not uh, perish but have everlasting life. So, so this, this narrow way, the, the attitude is, look, it's not narrow in its capacity. There's no limit to who, who can enter salvation. But there is a very narrow limit that's placed in terms of condition. The condition is very narrow. The condition to enter the gate. And that condition is faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is a very narrow condition. Paul said this to the Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Acts chapter 4 tells us salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So the condition is very narrow. Now, People react negatively to this. They have a problem with the fact that the conditions are narrow. They don't like that the conditions are narrow. They will say, that's so narrow-minded. Here's what I say in response to that. Truth, by definition, is narrow. My wife, Brenda, she's taking a math class right now. And she, she roped me into helping her. By, by making it into a competition. She's actually brilliant by doing that. Um, and so, you know, these, these algebraic equations and, and all, and, and I, I'm going back to high school, like, okay, I got an A in, in, in algebra in high school, but that was a long time ago. Like, I don't even remember this kind of thing. And, but it ended up being so much fun. But, you know, she, I come to find out, she asked me to help her because, you know, in, in this competitive kind of thing. Why? Well, because she wants me to check her math, literally, uh, and, and so, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this thing. Uh, so we're doing this competition, and it's like, oh, you, we, got, we both got the right answer. Okay, that's a good indication that this answer is right. Wait a minute, I got this answer, you got that answer. So now we got to dig into and kind of figure out, like, who's right and, and all. And it ended up being a lot of fun. But the, but the bottom line lesson is, look, truth is narrow. You know, there's only one right answer, you know. And, and it's that way when it comes to heaven, truth is narrow. Now, the reason this upsets people is because they really, they want to choose their own door. People don't like the fact that you say Jesus is the only way. Why? Because they want to be able to do what they want to do. They don't want to have to narrowly fit into, no, this is the way. You have to surrender the lordship of your own life over to Jesus Christ, and you have to enter in on his terms, not on your terms, and that's where people draw the line sometimes. They like the idea of heaven, but they don't like the terms. And you tell me, where does this work in any other place? Like you go down to the movie theater today after church, and you go, hey, I want to see the movie. And they say, fine, you can come right in, we'll let you enter in, but on our terms, go buy a ticket. And you go, well, I don't like the terms. And they say, fine, you're not seeing the movie. We ain't letting you in. Like, you know, it, this is, it's this way in so many other ways. And this is the way it is in Christianity. 
people just don't want to surrender to the lordship of Christ. Why? Well, really, they want to be God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. So the way to salvation is narrow. It's not on your terms. It's on God's terms, which brings us to Jesus' second key point. Here it is. We must strive to enter in, Jesus says. Now that word strive, if you're given to taking notes in your Bible, you could circle it nearby. You could write the word agonize. That's literally what that word is. It's agonizo in the Greek. Jesus says you have to agonize to get in. Now you're like, well, wait a minute. What is, what is Jesus saying here? Well, let me tell you, let's start with what he's not saying. He's not saying that you have to agonize to earn your way into heaven. You don't have to, it's not about doing good and trying harder and, you know, working out something to or some way, you know, shape or form, you do good enough to, to, to enter into heaven. That's not what, what Jesus is saying here. Bible makes it abundantly clear that our salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said that to the Ephesians. He said, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and he, uh, um, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his loving kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the Bible makes it abundantly clear. Your salvation is by grace through faith. This is, this is not the, the, the striving that uh, Jesus is talking about, this agonizing. No, again, what's he talking about? The, the striving, the agonizing, the idea behind it is that you put your whole self into the task. That's the idea, that you're putting your whole self into the task. What task? The task of listening to and responding to Jesus. You're putting your whole self into that process, that you're committing to that. Um, and the reason Jesus, Jesus is saying that we have to strive to do this is because, hey, let's just be honest, it's difficult to submit and to surrender to God. Is it not? It's difficult to submit and to surrender. It's difficult to accept somebody else's terms on your life, even if that somebody else is God. It's a difficult thing. Let's just, let's just be honest about it. It's difficult to give up control of your life. Like, you know, I joke about being a control freak, which, which I am, but all of us have this aspect where we're physical creatures, we live in a physical world, and we want to be able to walk by sight. Really, if you think about some of your most intense wrestling matches with God, they come down to the place where God wants you to walk by faith and not by sight. And so there is this wrestling, am I going to trust God and obey God? Just as, as the old hymn says, right? Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. <coughs> and so it's, it's difficult. We have to agonize over these things. Because the Bible says that anything that's not of faith is sin. So, so there is an agonizing process in that. We have to strive at, to, to submit and surrender. We have to strive to accept Jesus' terms. We have to strive to give up control. In other words, listen... Fire insurance faith is not going to cut it. What's fire insurance faith? 
if you've attended here for any length of time, I, I give invitations to receive Christ often. And I, I will just basically share the gospel. Listen, we're all sinners by nature and by choice. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we are yet sinners... Jesus Christ died for us. God's a loving God. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. And so I give this invitation. I give the gospel. I'll do it today. And what I do, what I ask is, hey, listen, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, raise your hand today so that I can pray for you. And, and there are many who will raise their hands. And, and, and I'll pray for them. And, and, and after the service, I'll say, hey, you know, we're going to be down up front we would love to pray for you, love to give you some information to help you in your walk with the Lord, to help you, you know, to, you've, you know, you've come forward by raising your hand. We want to help you to go forward in a new relationship with Christ. But I, but I don't have, you know, guards at the door to shake you down before you leave this place. I don't have people strong-arming you to bring you up front. Why? Because I recognize that some people who raise their hand, who basically come forward by raising their hands, will really never go forward in their life. That doesn't keep me from giving the invitation. But I'm not so naive as to think that, you know, if I have 12 people respond in a day or whatever, you know, you're not going to hear me say, oh, we got 12 people who got saved. And if I do, it's a slip of the tongue because I try to be very conscious to say, we've had 12 people who made professions of faith today. A profession of faith is not necessarily a, a surrendered life to Jesus Christ. And so there will be some who will respond. They'll raise their hand, and it's a fire insurance prayer. And that, and that one's meaningless. It might make you feel good in the moment, but it's not going to do anything for you. But it all comes down to your personal response. I can't make you do it. So I give the invitation, and we want to see what happens. But listen... Jesus says, you gotta, you got to agonize over entering through that narrow gate. This has to be something to where you say, I'm listening attentively, uh, Lord, I'm receiving you, and this is, a, this, is a, this is a contemplated, surrendered life to you, Lord Jesus. Not that you add anything to the equation of salvation. The only thing you add is a surrendered life, and that takes an agonizing work on your part. And so, so that's the idea here. It's also necessary, by the way, to, to strive to enter, because there are a lot of obstacles, quite frankly, just in our day-to-day life. The world is an obstacle. Satan and his demons are an obstacle. Your sinful flesh is an obstacle. The Bible talks about many being taken captive to do the will of Satan. These are all obstacles, and, and there's a strong delusion that is upon the earth, especially the Bible says in the last days. So all of these are, 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 are obstacles. And now Jesus brings, brings out a third point. Here it is. Many will not be able to enter. Many will not be able to enter. Look at verse 24. What's he say? He says, strive to enter through the, the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able... When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside, lock and lock door, and you're saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he'll answer or say to you, I don't know you, where you're from. And then you're going to begin to say, hey, we, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he's going to say, I, I tell you, I don't know you, where you're from. 
Depart from me, all your workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, you yourselves thrust out, right? And they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. And they'll sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first and there are the first who will be last. Many will not be able to enter. Again, let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. What Jesus is not saying here is that some of y'all on this earth might come to the place where you say, Lord, I want to be saved. And he says, yeah, not you. I know I said all, but then I looked at you and no, you're out. <laughs> let, me, let me amend that. Everybody but Ted, like that's it, you know. That's not the way it's going to go down. It's not like there's just a chosen few or whatever. That's not what's being commuted here. That's not communicated here. It's not that Jesus is going to turn away some people, you know, that want to enter his kingdom. It's not going to happen. Paul told Timothy, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All means all. That's all all means. God desires that. But understand, Jesus, when he, began the, when he began this answer, he began by talking about the narrow gate, but now what he's talking about is the closed gate. And the idea is that what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about when it's too late. Right now, hey, the gate's open. The way is narrow. The criteria is narrow. But the gate's open. But there's a day coming when the gate closes. And, and, and all, we, we don't know when that's going to happen. I think Isaiah the prophet sums up this idea perfectly. In Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon him. So Isaiah says, look, there's a, seek him while you can find him. And, and call upon him while he's near. And what Isaiah is intimating here is that there's a time coming when you, it's too late to seek him. You breathed your last. You, you, just, you just didn't realize. And the, the problem is nobody knows when that's going to be. At some point, the clock runs out for every last one of us, and God shuts the gate. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, God is long-suffering. However, there comes a time when even God shuts the gate. And Jesus says, when that happens, there's two groups of people. Stay with me. There's two groups of people when that happens, when the gate is shut. There's, there's those who got in, and there's those who didn't get in. And of the group that did not get in, well, some, by Jesus' story here, they, they will, it, it's obvious they had no association with Jesus whatsoever. They live a life totally rejecting him, no association with him whatsoever. And then after their death, they realize, well, I made a big mistake. And so they're going, hey, let us in. But there are others who, by Jesus' story, it would seem to suggest that they had a loose, loose association with Jesus. These were the ones that said, hey, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. And the idea is these are people who, you know, basically... They believe God exists, but they've never surrendered their life to Jesus. It's like this. I took Brenda to the airport yesterday, day before yesterday. Actually, I didn't take her to the airport. I took her to a friend's house who was going to the airport, whatever. Same, same difference. I took, 
Took her to get, get to the airport, right? Slowed to 20 at her friend's house, let her tuck and roll to get out, you know. Um, so she went to the airport. Now, she had her ticket. She went through TSA. She got to the gate. Now, what would have happened if when she got to the gate, she later called me and said, I missed my flight. And I said, what happened? She's like, I don't know. I went through TSA. I was at the gate. I was sitting right next to the airplane. And I could hear them over the loudspeaker talking about my departure and the whole thing. Well, yeah, did you go through the gate? Did you get on the plane? Well, no. See, that's the idea. These people, are they've got this loose association with Jesus. It's kind of like, well, you know what? I went to that church on Santiago one time you know, for the Christmas service or whatever. I, I, I was there a couple times. I went to the men's thing. I even ate a hot dog. Cool. I like what Greg Laurie says. He said, look, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac, you know? And, and, and so <laughs> sitting on a recliner eating ice cream doesn't, doesn't make you a fireman, you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> going to a donut shop doesn't make you a cop, Right? I'm an equal opportunity offender. I was a fireman for all you firemen. There you go. They don't pass for what we do. They pass for what we're willing to do, right? Um, <laughs> this is the kind of person James was talking about. He, he basically has a section there in James chapter 2. We're talking about people who basically say they have a saving faith, but there's, no, there's nothing in their life to back it up. Here's the way James put it. He says, you say you have faith, for you believe that there's one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Why do the demons tremble in terror? Because, yeah, they believe there's a God, and they know that the day is coming when they're going to be cast into eternal torment, into the eternal flames, when there is no escape, a judgment day for them is coming, and they have no hope because they've rejected God. Yeah, they believe that Jesus is Jesus, the Son of the living God, but there's no surrender. And, and what James says is that some people fit that category, and that's who Jesus is describing here. And so we have to take a walk with it. we got to understand that, look, as Jesus talks to these Jews, he's saying it takes more than your birthright. It takes more than your background. <clears throat> In our context here, it takes more than a fire insurance prayer. It takes more than darkening the door of a church. It has to be a total surrender. And listen, understand here, that takes true repentance. Jesus said this, we read it in Luke chapter 5, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What does repentance mean? It means to have a change of heart resulting in a change of direction. Okay, The hand raised for prayer is a change of heart. A life lived obediently following after Jesus, it demonstrates that there was a change to direction along with that heart. You see, there's a big difference. And this is the concept that these self-righteous Pharisees just couldn't get. They knew nothing about because in their religious pride, they didn't think they needed to repent. Which is why Jesus says in there in verse 27, I'll tell you, I don't know you, where you, depart, where, uh, where you come from, Depart from me, he says, you workers of iniquity. These are religious guys. But the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. You can do all this kind of good works, 
But if you're doing it to be right with God or to earn a right standing with God, God's like, That's, there's no covering for your sin in that. You're a worker of iniquity because you're filled with sin. And the only one that can make you sin less is Jesus Christ because he washes away your sins by his work on the cross. When Jesus says in verse 28 that there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets, what he's saying to these religious Jews is you guys think you get in by your birthright, but what you're going to see is that you're out, all the prophets are in. Why? Because they worshipped me. They worshipped me. And there's a difference between the two. He says in verse 29 that there are going to be those that come from the east and from the west, from the north, from the south, that are going to be sitting in the kingdom of God. He goes on in verse 30 to talk about how the last will be first and the first will be last. And what Jesus here is articulating to these religious people is saying, look, you all think that you, because of your birthright, and you, because you're Jews, are going to heaven, but it's going to blow your mind. Gentiles are going to be in heaven. And the Jews, they thought that Gentiles, the only reason that they existed was because God created them to fuel the fire of hell. Gentiles existed in the Jews' mind so that they could make hell hotter, basically, is what they thought. And God is saying, Jesus is saying, eh, eh, no, you're going to blow your mind who's there. Which should give us hope, by the way, today. Some people, they come to church, they're thinking, I've done too much. I'm too far from God. No, you haven't. There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8 says. Here's the point. point is that there's going to come a time <clears throat> when it's too late. And that's why you have to have an urgency to enter in now. You've got to have an urgency to enter in now because outside there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. Now, I want you to remember, those are Jesus' words. This isn't your pastor preaching hellfire and brimstone. Jesus is preaching hellfire and brimstone. As near as I can tell, in the entire Bible, you know who talks about hell the most? Jesus Christ. Why? Because he doesn't want you to go there. He does not want you to go there. He wants you to understand it's a real place. And there's real torment there. Now, in contrast to that, and I want to close with this thought because it's a beautiful, encouraging thought. David Guzik, in his commentary, he points out that, that Jesus describes heaven as a very real place as well. And David Guzik makes this observation that these few words of Jesus tell us a little bit about what heaven is like. Number one, that it's a real place. Number two, that it's a place with people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. God's saving grace goes the whole world over. Many people coming from many nations. Thirdly, he says, it's a place of rest. And fourthly, he says that heaven is a place of reunion with those that we love. It's a place of reunion. Where those that we have loved that have fallen asleep in faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible promises we're going to see them again. I love these words of C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. He says, Would not that be a dreary heaven for us to inhabit where we should be alike, unknowing, and unknown? I would not care to go to such as a heaven as that, but heaven is a fellowship of the saints, and we shall know one another there. We shall hear those loved voices again. 
We shall hear those sweet voices once more. We shall yet know that those whom we loved have been loved by God. Brenda and I were listening recently to a video. And it was her mom on the video. And her mom went home to be with the Lord many years ago, several years ago. Lovely lady from Northern Ireland. And just hearing her voice and her accent. And it's incredible encouragement and hope to know. I'm going to hear that again. Because she died knowing the Lord. And I'm going to stop it right there. And I just want to say this. That God knows you and he loves you. And he's gone to extraordinary lengths to redeem you. If you're here today and you know that you've surrendered your life to Jesus, I would exhort you to continue to act and to operate in, a, in an obedient way. And part of that means that you share this good news with other people. But I ask you the question, maybe today <clears throat> you've been deceived. You've either rejected Jesus or maybe you're the fire insurance Christian that really needs to make your calling and election sure today. There needs to be a surrender to God. And I'm not going to beat that horse. I'm just going to simply say, you know if that's you, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you right now.